Howdy there, everybody. I am Nate, and I'm joined here today with Kevin, and we are going to do a quick intro, uh, quick intro track that's separated from our actual interview that we did with Keith Wasserman. Um, and Keith is a, a really cool guy in Athens, Ohio. We actually uh, traveled uh, to visit him uh, yesterday, and he talked about his organization that he founded and still currently good works runs good works yes uh good works inc in athens ohio it's inc period yes that too <laughs> llc <laughs> um and uh the the reason that we wanted to interview keith was uh because keith like we said runs good works inc it is the only um or i shouldn't say the only but one of the only organizations that focuses on uh, people who are without homes in uh, in and around the Athens area and also really just Southeast Ohio. Uh, I had the pleasure of working for Keith and Good Works Inc. for a short while back when I was in INC college. INC period. INC period. Uh, back when I was in school. So uh, this will actually be really cool for me to be able to see Keith and talk to Keith again. It's been a long time. Uh, so it's a really great interview and uh, yeah, we'll get to it here in a second. But beforehand, uh, uh, no, I just I would I would add to that when we walked away from that that interview with Keith, all of us were just absolutely floored. Just the man yeah. is a wealth of wisdom and just an incredible resource of how God moves and works in our lives if we allow him. Um, so very inspirational. And, you know, I don't say this lightly, like, you know, listen to this podcast. It is incredible. Incredible. Absolutely. I think um, it'll transform your thoughts on people without homes because we obviously, um, I think the media and, and really just us as people in general, we've always looked at situations uh, as those and almost, you know, looked at them with a sense of, of scoff, if you will. Um, we've never, I, I don't think, truly tried to understand people without homes um, who are displaced as, as much as we probably should. And I think Keith is really just the ultimate guy um, to talk to about this because God has just really gifted him with the ability to understand their situations and their perspectives. So, Also, some redemption for Cody in this interview. Absolutely. Because... Uh, Cody is our podcaster who is always forgetting questions. <laughs> and so there's some redemption. You don't have to pay attention, but yeah. uh, Keith forgets a few questions that we asked him. And now Keith is much older than Cody. So still Cody doesn't have a full excuse, but right. there was just some redemption that, Hey Cody, you're not the only one that forgets <laughs> what we're talking about as, but, as we're talking about it. <laughs> to be fair, Keith, Keith, Keith's mind, I think, goes about a million miles per hour uh, every minute. So, what are you saying, Cody? Doesn't, um, you know, I think Cody's <laughs> brain is a little bit more laid back. <laughs> Let's just say that. Very tactful way to put that. Very tactful, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. PC. Uh, so again, before we get to that interview here in just a minute, uh, we would like to just kind of start our show off with some of the normal things that we do every week. Uh, just kind of talking about a couple important news 
news things that happen in our world as well as get a, a brief synopsis of Kevin's sermon. So uh, starting with news segments, uh, it's been kind of a crazy week um, in regards to a couple things. There's been a, a big court case happening in the United States, a pretty, pretty charged court case, if you will, uh, and that would be the case of uh, Kyle Rittenhouse versus, I don't know if it's the state of Wisconsin or Kenosha, Yeah, but uh, but yeah, that's been a pretty charged interview. Uh, what a joke. Seen. Yeah? What a sham of a, you know, just the court system as a whole. I mean, just, you know, this kid... I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that I would do the same thing he did exactly. I'm not, I'm not, you know what I'm saying? I'm just saying like he, he, he defended himself and the prosecution has absolutely no, nothing on him. But yet it's this, as you said, politically charged case that's going to determine this kid's life. And the reality is like from the evidence and what we're seeing, this guy's innocent. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it. Even the the people who who took the videos, I think, of the incident from multiple angles have come and come out and basically said that they believe it was in self defense. Um, and again, there's we're we definitely don't want to want to take sides on this issue. I don't think, um, at least I don't, uh, because there's you know there's always two sides to every story. There's a lot of gray area in it. But you know, going off the evidence, yeah, like you said, Kevin, I think it's pretty pretty cut and dry in my opinion, um, where, uh, where this court case is going. So, um, you know, pray, pray for, pray for wisdom through that. Pray that cool heads will always prevail and that maybe even a little dose of Jesus could be, uh, instilled in, in a situation like this. That's a hope, but you know, I mean, I I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer here, but like you're, oh, you're being such a Debbie Downer. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to. Lift this up, <laughs> but like, let's be honest here. You know, I mean, this is you, you know, there's other cases that have been very clear cut. Hey, listen, this person was in the wrong, and but this just seems like you know that individuals are wanting a conviction not based on facts but a conviction based on political leaning and i we will see more and more of this you know as this as 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 this nation moves forward i shouldn't say moves forward as this nation snowballs out of control i mean i'm just i'm being honest i mean let's let's be honest let's not be let's not bury our heads in the sand like yeah yeah, in in multiple ways, I I agree with you there wholeheartedly. Um, so yeah, that's obviously again. Let's pray for that situation. Uh, let's pray for everyone involved with that. Um, even the perpetrators, prosecutors, defense, everybody. Um, again, hopefully Jesus will uh will be instilled there. Uh, Kevin, another piece of news. I don't know. That's about all I've really seen this week, to be honest with you. What about that? He got freed. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that though. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just right. don't. You're a pop guy though. You like pop music. Uh, I like Sugar Ray. That's the only pop music That's you like. About it, man. You're not a Britney fan. I mean, not really. That. What about that uh, Western Brown quarterback? That's news. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so yeah, a local local high school quarterback. Uh, what's his name? He's again? leading the nation in passing yards. Yeah, the the whole nation. 
Um, what's his name again, though? When when I say nation, I meant the whole nation. The whole nation. <laughs> Hawaii what and man? Alaska included. And the, Puerto Rico. the Virgin Islands. Does Puerto Rico? Yeah. And American right. Samoa. The whole nation. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> I don't know how big high school football is in American Samoa, but he's leading the pack there, too. Folks. I thought that it's pretty big over there, isn't it? Because uh, you got like... Yeah, uh, you got like Palomalu. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is actually. What was the linebacker for the Bengals? Uh, Mana Malaluga. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah Malaluga. That's not exactly right, but it's something like that. Yeah. yeah but there's yeah, sev- several. is actually really big with football. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's awesome. So, again, what, what was his name again? He's a junior in high school, Western Brown. Novak. Is it Drew? Drew Novak. Yeah. Yeah. Broke Joe Burrow's passing. Yeah, records. Ben Roethlisberger's pin yeah. passing record. Yeah, he's like if he has a really good game this week, which they expect him to, he'll pass. He'll have over five thousand yards passing and fifty-five touchdowns. Yeah, that's impressive. So for all you sports lovers, which I don't think we get many, because <laughs> usually people complain when we talk sports. One of but. one of the five listeners, I guarantee, likes sports. So <laughs> we're good. We're appealing to 20% of you. <laughs> but yeah, that is big news. So congratulations to him. That's that's an awesome season. And to his teammates as well. You know, he's got to have pass protection, right? Got to the, got to thank the boys up front. So good job, guys. Keep it up. Um, so Kevin, Sermon. Yeah. Tell us about it, man. Well, I just preached it five minutes ago. It should be we, fresh uh, in your head. Yeah. We sat down. Uh, right after to record this intro, but um, this week, <clears throat> what was the subject? What What do you mean? Uh, your way and God's way. Hey, hey. I listen. Yeah, your I way, God's way. We through, we talked but... about we talked about plans. We talked about God's plans. We talked about how God is one hundred percent in control, sovereign. We are one hundred percent in control of our lives and our choices and our decisions. And it's hard to understand that, but we kind of broke that down, what that looks like, you know, and how that plays out in our lives and, and how the more we lean into living the way that God has called us to, the, the way that he's directed us to, the way that he's commanded us to, um, the more we become the type of people whose plans succeed. Um, so check it out. But uh, uh, that's how we're going to be wise people. Right on, right on. Yeah, it was good, man. So... Refresh my memory here. Is that's not the last one on Proverbs, is it? No, is it? no, 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 no. Okay, we've got uh, shoot. I, I'll have Five to look at my weeks. list. Yeah, there's a few, several more lists. Weeks. It was supposed to end <clears throat> like the end of November, but we had um, some guests, speakers, and some other things um, that have kind of pushed the series back a little bit. So, yeah. we'll, we might go into December just a bit, but then we'll, we'll get into a Christmas series and then, uh, be unveiling our vision for 2022 and the next three years, um, in that. So looking awesome. forward to, to that and more on that to come even on this, on this, uh, on the podcast. So. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to Keith here in just a second, but, uh, you know, hopefully Keith can, can come and talk eventually, hopefully here soon. Part do part do. Yeah. As they say. So yeah, folks, without further ado, we're going to go ahead and, uh, in this intro and we're going to get right into the real interview that we had with Keith Wasserman from good works, Inc. Dot L L C C. Yep. 
All right, guys, enjoy this. Uh, it was a pleasure for us to do this. Uh, so, enjoy. Good morning, afternoon, evening, whatever time it is. Guys, this time change has got me messed up, okay? <laughs> Give me a break. Give me a break. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to LCC's podcast, Pursuit of Purpose. I am Nate, and I'm joined here today with... Cody. Kevin. And Keith. And Keith Wasserman. So, uh, as Keith previously mentioned, we do have him here in person. Uh, Keith Wasserman is the founder of Good Works Inc. here in Athens, Ohio. We did take our show on the road On the road, again. second time ever. Yeah, second time ever. The last yeah. time we were in uh, Chris Osborne's dinky little garage. Yep. But it worked. It At worked. At Butler Springs Christian At Camp. At Butler Springs yep. Christian right. Camp, yeah. Um, so we are we are here in Athens with Keith Wasterman, and uh, Keith, just once again, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on with us and just kind of telling us about your story and and things like that. We're really excited to hear about it. So, um, without further ado, we're gonna kind of just jump right in and uh, kind of grill you a little bit here, Keith, and just like I said, pick your brain. So, uh, so Keith, I'm just gonna start off simple. Uh, if you could just kind of tell us what Good Works Inc. is. Um, maybe how you got it started, uh, how Jesus has led you, um, helped you get through the challenges of running an organization like this here in Athens and the surrounding area. Um, yeah, I'd like to like to kind of hear your perspective and your story on that. Here's the story. <laughs> so I uh, became a follower of Jesus in high school. I am Jewish. And so when people first um, told me uh, about Jesus, my response was, I'm Jewish. We don't believe in Jesus. Hmm. Later, they told me Jesus was Jewish. This was quite a shock. The only thing I ever heard was when I was a kid, my dad would get angry. Jesus Christ, he would say. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I didn't know much. And um, uh, I can go back to that story a little bit. But in uh, 1980, the fall of 1980, I started Good Works after I received from God the gift of naivete. What I mean by that is I had no idea <laughs> what I was really doing, but I had zeal, I had faith, I had joy, and I had a house. And so I remodeled the basement of that house with the help of a friend and turned it into a place for people to stay with no place to sleep. We didn't have language at that time. We used the phrase displaced persons. Uh, nobody uses that language anymore. And it wasn't until about 1984 that we realized that all these people staying in our basement for all these years were called the homeless. Well, duh. But we don't use that language anymore. At least we try not to use that language. Um, I was having lunch with Kevin. We were actually eating at Chipotle. And he's just talking and he says, I'm homeless. I said, Kevin, you're not homeless. He looks me back in the eye and he says, well, I'm living in your shelter. I said, Kevin, you are not homeless. I said, Kevin, you are a man who right now is without a home. And we've got to find a way to separate what's happened to someone from their identity as a person. And that became a catalyst um, maybe about 15 years ago. So we now started using the awkward phrase, people without homes. But we operated out of my house uh, beginning in January 1981. The first person to come in was named Carol. And she was from this place I'd never heard of called Appalachia. Or is it... <laughs> 
Appalachia. <laughs> well, I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> Kevin, any thoughts on that? No, I'm, I'm not, if it's language stuff, you don't want me involved. That's true. That's true. So, though I had never heard of it, I've been living in it for the previous four years inside what Ohio University students now refer to as the bubble. And I didn't know about Appalachia. And today I can talk a lot about the history, the values, the needs, the people, and the beauty. And uh, the way the media has tended towards villainizing this part of the United States. But she talks so fast that I had to ask her to repeat herself at least five times. And by the fifth time, I just kind of gave up and hoped that I got it. Um, and she was one of the first people I took in. So, wh- like, where did you where did you meet her? Like, was th- was she... Was this something you're driving down the road, you see this lady and you're like, you know, what's going on here? Like what, like, how did that happen? So by the time I met Carol, people were being referred to us. We had opened our doors. We had had a phone number and people were directing other people because we're one of the first shelters in these counties and one of the oldest rural shelters in the state of Ohio. So she called and she came. So you'd already at that point been working with people without homes. That was just the beginning. That was right at the start. That was so, and but there was already an awareness and a ministry. I mean, if you had a phone number and and you guys were opening a a, a place for them to stay, like what what would did the work look like before that? Like was there was it just befriending uh, people that that had needs, taking them a meal, like. Where did that where did that the that that start before I mean because it was kind of a process it sounds like to get to a place where they were actually living in the house so the year before that uh, our campus fellowship uh, we were called Friday night fellowship a lot of the students moved out of the dorms in the housing and we had established about five different households of Christians living together in our neighborhood and so we had about a year to kind of get to know each other and work with each other. And then when I opened Good Works, they all agreed to let me send them the people who were staying at the house for dinner at their house. It was kind of a community event. These were all college students. So we had about a year and a half to kind of do all that. And then we built this thing in the fall of 1980. Um, and then we kind of, word got out that uh, there was a place that you could go to. And that's, uh, she was one of the first people to come. Wow. Yeah. We had been... Um, organizing visit people to visit the elderly at their homes during the fall of 1980, and that's when we started the, using the language "good works." I worked with three local congregations, and the pastors gave us a lot of favor, and we had volunteers, and we organized ways for those volunteers to visit. The terminology at that time was called shut-ins: people who were unable to get out of their houses right. and didn't get out much. So. Uh, that's the first part of Good Works was primarily mostly to widows and widowers before we ever opened the shelter. That's incredible. Uh, you know, like the, the thing that's so intriguing to me is I, I had a I had a high schooler come up to me the other day and, and she had they had gone to a conference and she'd been given an assignment and it was a really lofty assignment. It, it was like create an event where you bring, you know, uh, people together to I, I can't remember exactly but something in that regard and and this was daunting to her you know as a as a young person looking at trying to and she she's a very quiet individual anyway it's not not an outgoing personality and so it was just a big deal and I said I said you know I just really want you to just begin to pray and think and just hear God in this but you're you're 
21 years old when you're beginning this stuff, doing, working with churches and, and, and organizing and pulling all these resources together. I mean, to, if I went to a 21 year old today and said, Hey, listen, like, here's what we want to do. Help me, help me do this. Like, I, I feel like they would, they would feel like a deer in headlights. So how do you get, I mean, how do you, how do you get to a place where you're like, you know what, there is a need. I'm going to go tackle it. I'm going to go, I'm going to go conquer this. I'm going to go after this. Like, like what got you to that point? I mean, how? how? <laughs> so I came out of the drug culture. I grew up in the Cleveland uh, east side suburbs of Cleveland Heights and University Heights. I was a drug addict at the age of 12 and then started selling drugs to 7th, 8th, ninth graders. My life was a mess and uh, I was a kid your, your, your parents hoped you would never meet. So um, when I became a Christian, I gave my life to the Lord. Uh, it was a full body, emotional giving away. And, and Jesus came to me and appeared to me and still does very frequently revealing himself to me. Um, and so my life had a dramatic shift. And so the first miracle that I didn't even believe in miracles when I experienced the miracle, I graduated high school. Trust me, it was a miracle, <laughs> you know, and I came here and I was missional minded and I made friends with pastors and leaders and and just felt like God had called me to do something. I didn't know what it was. I'm not sure I still know, but I know that there's there's a pathway. And then the gifts began to emerge, the gift of leadership. And along with that was all my immaturity that still had, you know, needed to grow. And and but um, the Lord continued to just gave us lots of favor. And so um, when we opened, it was a personal project. I had invested my own money to remodel the house. We paid for everything. We didn't ask for any donations until the third year. Um, and so I was, as I said earlier, I was running on zeal and I loved it and I still like it. Yeah. Yeah. I know yeah. there's something wrong with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was the process? So Carol walks in, was there an objective besides just giving her a place to sleep and, and, and maybe some food? So a long time ago, someone said in this wisdom, tell people what you're going to tell them, then tell them. And then thirdly, tell them what you told them. Yeah. And that's a principle that we use. So Carol would call on the phone. We'd tell her what to expect. She'd arrive. We'd, we'd make sure that she felt safe, that this place looked safe and it smelled safe. And we'd use language to reinforce because our goal is to build trust with people. And if people don't feel safe, that is not going to happen. So uh, then we we do what we call an intake, which is collecting information about her that she's comfortable sharing. And then we begin uh, to orient her to the space that she was in. And, you know, we just need to get through the first night where she can get up in the morning and think, oh, this is okay. It went okay. I don't have to be frightened about anything. And these people are, they're good. I don't have to worry about them. That's so important when you're starting to love your neighbor that you, you take those variables into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. What, how do you feel like, you know, early on the community responded? I'm sure there was positives, but I'm sure there was some backlash and some negatives too. Like what did you see, you know, from the community around you? I mean, this was a radical thing that you were doing. Like, you know, you know, at the time I was doing this, I didn't measure or weigh the radical nature of what it was at the time. Um, and my, I had a big advantage. I was not raised in the church. Yeah, I was not educated to 
to learn programmed you, you almost. can't do this you're right. not allowed these things you know and i look at people now often hindered by the way because uh, and i told this we had uh, teen interns last summer and i said um christians do not do what the bible says huh? you can stop there and let people like pause and think <laughs> okay where is he going with that i said christians generally speaking well, there are some exceptions, but generally speaking, do what they see other Christians doing. Absolutely. Right? So nobody, I never saw anybody doing this. And so I felt the Holy Spirit was leading me. Now, I looked at the Luke verse years later and realized the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus said, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And I began to understand that there is a special power of God that comes on all obedient believers who want to engage into people's lives who are broken and violated and hurting or addicted. And if you step into that with the Holy Spirit, God will give you a special grace to persevere. And that's the key. It's, you know, anybody could do something once, but to persevere over a long period of time, that's the grace of God. And God will give that grace, you know? So when I first started, um, well, I forgot the question. Where were we going with that? Well, just... (laughs) Just speaking about like some of the, I guess you have this you have this call you have this passion you have this vision on your life and and so you're 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 doing these things. There's very good things happening clearly. Oh, did I have opposition? But the opposition, I didn't you, have any. It's, we were so under the radar. We got going before NIMBY was invited. Now, if you don't know what NIMBY stands for, it's it's an acronym that says Not In My Backyard that the communities use to rule out things that people want to do. Right. No one even heard of NIMBY when I started. So, and there, you know, this is an interesting phenomenon. I don't think many people know this. There are no laws, and this is an understatement, there are no laws prohibiting you from having guests in your home. <laughs> <laughs> what? Now, <laughs> now, wait. <laughs> again, if you're a renter, there are laws. But if you own your house, and I own the house, there is no laws prohibiting you if you're a homeowner. Secondly, there are no laws prohibiting you for how long those guests can stay. Well, like, duh. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean there are a lot of people out there that can just start loving their neighbors by creating space, right? So we, in 2012, I moved from my house in the countryside that I've been living in for 25 years into the city, and we outfitted our house to take the overflow of people that the Timothy house, our shelter, was turning away. Wow. And so there's a private entrance to a bedroom and a bathroom. People don't go into the rest of our house. Now, I can I can be a consultant with anybody that wants to do this because there are some practical things, but we had no problems. When I mean no problems between the time 20, uh, 2012 when we started this to 2021, I mean no problems. We have structure. People have to agree to that structure. Sometimes they forget, but generally... Um, this is a lot easier than people think. Mm-hmm. What's the obstacle? Fear. That's the biggest obstacle. Because if you watch enough movies, you watch enough television, you watch enough news, you are injected. People are, you know, people are afraid of getting the, the, the vaccine. Well, you're getting injected every day with fear from the media about those people. And, and how are those people, those people depicted in movies? And mm, boom, 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 boom. There's this like music behind the danger. And people who are poor and often uh, homeless or without a home are, are not depicted in a positive light most of the time. Right. So we didn't have any opposition. We were very fortunate. Then... Uh, and we wanted to start receiving some income 
from what we were doing, maybe making this into a job. I was a volunteer. Um, and so we had to go to the city zoning board of appeals to get permission to have to do this and have income from doing it. And so we went and um, the only person that came to the hearing was someone who lived directly behind me. I did not know her and she came to support us. Wow. We had no opposition. Um, wow. Now, again, uh, we're, we're very controlled in terms of how we function our program in our neighborhood. We're very conscious of our neighbors and the residents who stay with us. They, they have some responsibilities to not draw problems to the neighbors. So we monitor that pretty closely. Well, I know like that was one of the things that, that Cody had shared. Yeah. Maybe talk about that a little bit because there has been some opposition to, you know, what's going on in Wilmington right now. Yeah. I mean, like I said, the, um, the, the house that, that we have in Wilmington is our father's kitchen. It's not necessarily a house. It's more like a, um, just a huge building. They offer meals every evening for the homeless. They uh, provide worship Tuesday nights. They provide uh, can drive foods, whatever, so they can come and get their foods and go. But you know, there's, there's some, I couldn't tell you the percentage of people, but there are a vocal amount of people in that community in Wilmington that do not favor that program. Um, for various reasons, and one of the reasons being that where the building is located is on the main drag of where you're going through Wilmington, and they feel like it makes Wilmington an, ugly, an uglier place because, you know, they're saying these people are just laying on the picnic tables that are provided there. They have all their stuff laying out. Um, they're eating food and leaving their trash. Um, a lot of our homeless, not a lot. Well, yeah, I would say probably a lot. I don't again, I don't know a percent, but a lot of our homeless in Wilmington are either in recovery for drug addiction or are still currently battling uh, drug addiction. And so with that comes some other negative aspects that people only perceive, well, if they're homeless or a drug addict, so they, they need to go, basically is the mindset that you hear a lot in Wilmington. And, and the one difference that I, that I guess I see from listening to you and then knowing Wilmington is um, Wilmington's a small city and that building is in the middle of the city where this is more of like out in the, out in the country. Well, our shelter is located in the city oh, okay. and it's on a residential street in a residential neighborhood. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Oh, yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So good works has three locations and you're on one of them. And this is the largest. We have 35 acres here and several outbuildings and several things go on here. Then our shelter is in the city of Athens on central Avenue. And then we're building a new facility across the street from that now uh, that will accommodate people who are experiencing homelessness, who have a physical disability and can't take steps. Yeah. So that'll be the first group. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, it's interesting to hear an officer's perspective um, on this, too. Um, that's why I'm glad you're here today, Cody, because um, you've kind of seen, I feel like, the other the other end of this as well. Um, but I want to go back to your point that you, you made about intakes. Um, so when I worked at the Timothy House for, for a little while, um, you know, I remember my first night there. I worked night shift. Uh, and I was nervous, man. I was, I was really nervous because I was just this little rinky-dink college kid who had never, um, I don't want to say never, I had been around homeless, but I didn't fully understand the perspective. It's that not homeless, Nate. It's people without homes. People without homes. Come on, dude. Yeah, sorry. Um, Keith, don't let him get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> people without homes. Um, so I never, I never fully, I guess, understood that perspective until that night. I was afraid, but at the same time, the person who was coming in for that intake that night, um, you know, kind of goes back to that point of fear 
You know, I, it was hard to imagine, hard to put myself in their shoes more than it was mine. So I think, you know, the biggest thing that we can get out of this is like perspective, right? You know, from, from hearing like Cody's stories of how people treat, um, uh, people without homes, um, in Wilmington and, and yours, Keith, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how we can bridge that gap, uh, somehow, because I, I still think obviously there's a very large gap, um, that needs filled in that regard. So you have questions such as how does a society love their neighbors? What are the civic or civil responsibilities that we all have regardless? Uh, what is the role of government? What is the role of the church? What's yeah. the role of nonprofits? Um, and and who gets heard? You know, like at city council meetings, who gets who gets heard? Um, and uh, so all those all those issues kind of swirl around. But for us. The, the question is, how do, how do we love our neighbors? And what's the most loving thing is the question we pose a lot. Uh, let's face it. There are some people that are outside of, of our capacity to help. Yep. They, there are others who need to help them, including law enforcement. Um, and then the, the question is, what can we do? I, uh, I tell my coworkers once in a while, bow your head, close your eyes, and click your heels together and repeat after me. I am not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. We can't be the Messiah. We can only do our part. And we can try to do it better and better and better. But we, in a rural community like Athens, and this is probably true for Wilmington, um, we're generalists. We have to do a lot of different things. And we have to know what other people do and help make those connections. So we don't have an addiction recovery program in our shelter, but we have expectations that anybody that's going to stay with us is in recovery, is willing to do random drug tests when requested. And if they're not in recovery, they're not really appropriate for our program. We're not, a re- uh, we're not taking people in, uh, we stopped doing this maybe eight years ago, who are still using. We're just not. Just because their situation is they're without a home, we're not crossing that line until they commit to some form of recovery. It's never perfect, but that's the, the environment we're creating. Right. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that is you'll have, like Jennifer, she was six months into her recovery. She's doing really well. She's working a program. And then we let Lisa in, and within 24 hours, Jennifer relapses because right. there's sabotage there. And so we feel a responsibility to Jennifer, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, putting somebody in a room with her and then suddenly she relapses. So we have to be careful that we're doing our job on all levels. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think another interesting um, thing about, you know, good works in general is just the relational aspect. Um, you know, you're not only taking people in, but you're truly trying to transform their lives in some capacity. Um, and, and you're doing that through the word. Um, so, Keith, I, would you talk about transformation station? I, I think that's a really interesting thing, um, and just how you guys have done that over the years. So all of the ministries we have, and let me just say we have a, a neighbors helping neighbors, which is our care for widows at their homes. We have a thing called work retreats where we invite what we you might call short-term mission teams. And before COVID, we had thirty the thirty-five groups that would come here, and we'd send them out to people's homes. Um, we operate Friday Night Life, which is our public meal every Friday night, and Kids Club. Um, and then uh, about 15 years ago, we created the Transformation State. It was an idea. It was a concept. Because up until that point, there was only two ways people got things they need. You either give them stuff or you sell them stuff. And we wanted to create – I wanted to create a third way. And so we created this third way um, to get help people get things. And there's five things they can have. Cars. 
furniture, appliances, non-emergency food, and bicycles. And we don't sell them and we don't give them away. It's all based on sweat equity. That means that people, we they move from an old identity called needy to a new identity called volunteer. We elevate them to the role of a volunteer. We schedule them. One morning is a point. One afternoon is a point. As they accumulate points, they can get any of these items. The cars are 24 points. They can't work every day. Here's the vision. Bring people into community. Clothe them with dignity. Remind them of who they really are. As you get to know them, you get the opportunity to permission to say, can I pray for you? Um, can you get permission? And we have this um, philosophy of witness, and it's these four principles, and one of them is get permission. Don't assume your 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 title gives you that. You you ask permission. Um, you, you know, the other one is earn the right to speak. Don't assume you automatically have that right. You earn that right. Another one is use respect. And the last one is Assume God's already working in some way, and your job is to further God's work before you ever met this person. You know, Lord, how can I further your work? So in the TS, it's our code word for transformation station, uh, we'll meet somebody. They they leave that old identity of needy. They enter the new identity of volunteer, and then they work with other volunteers. They could be from Columbus or Indiana or, or they're all over. We have people volunteering from all over. And so they go out mostly on the neighbor's projects, and they'll make, they may get the Thelma's house. Well, Thelma was 101 years old before she died. We'd known her, worked with her for years. And then Thelma meets them all at the door. Well, she didn't differentiate, oh, you're the boy that's working for the car, she doesn't do that. They're all volunteers. You're elevating someone psychologically. You're, you're, you're giving them an identity and you're clothing them with dignity and then you're inviting them to use their abilities, their natural skills and abilities. And a lot of times people come and they think, I don't, have any, I don't have any skills. Well, then we take time to help get to know them enough to invite them to try things. Now, we don't ever want people to be uncomfortable. We don't people on ladders. They don't want to be on ladders. But it's amazing to see some of the skills people have, including cooking, uh, that they bring. And then at the end, uh, for their cars, we have a ceremony in which we gather lots of people together, and the people who have worked with them the most offer them words of gratitude and mm. affirmation and encouragement. It's kind of an injection of hope. Wow. And then we take a photo, and then they start the car, and they drive off because the car is titled to them. It's their car. Now, before they get their car, they can pick any car on the lot. They can drive them around. They can bring a mechanic to make sure they run fine. But once they leave the lot, that's their car. They're not bringing <laughs> it back. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's neat because I see your your Facebook posts about Transformation Station a lot. And, and you know, it seems as though like the end objective is to receive something after what you say, sweat equity. But really, it's the journey along the way that that they're uh, that they're getting, um, and, and, I, and it's just great. And I'll say something here about mutuality. Mutuality is not a word that I was familiar with probably until 2005, and one of our staff helped me to see that there is something more going on than me helping another person. Now, in in good works culture, we have language: do for, do with, and be with. A lot of our culture and I might say the church, is stuck in the do-for way of thinking. Yep. Can I do this for you? Can I help you? Look away, Look what we've done for those people. Right. And we believe that it's important to move to do with. Now, I'll give you an example. Uh, we intentionally do not have a dishwasher in either one of our facilities. Why? Because we know that people will get to know each other as they share the responsibility of doing the dishes together. Mm. There's lots of things like firewood and mowing and there's lots of ways that we get to know people 
we in order for that to make sense, we had to establish the ethic of inefficiency. <laughs> that means that, yes, we could do this better and faster, but because relationships are the key, we want to build friendship and trust, we're taking more time to do it. Absolutely. So mutuality came along later out of that, which was this idea that not only do we have something to give, but we have something to receive. And that can we create an environment where people can actually feel like they have, it's not just one way, it's like they have something to give. They have, And that's where the, 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 the secret sauce of real transformation occurs through mutuality. And they get to the end of their time and they point to things that they did and, and the ways in which they impacted us. And that's part of the story of the relationship. So you talk Absolutely. about the end of their time. Is there is there a certain length of time that that individuals are given to kind of go through this process and and kind of what are the things like the steps you want to see taken in that? So we're talking about the transformation stage yes, now. Yeah. So yeah, there's a process. It starts with a phone call, then it goes through an interview, uh, and then we get them on a schedule for when they start. Now there's. 50 plus people on the waiting list right now for cars. And if you know where we can get cars, do tell because all the cars have been donated to us. 191 cars donated to wow. us and they all work. You know, that's that's a real cool thing. We don't fix them. They have to work. Uh, but more than 191 people that have received them. So uh, they're not coming from dealerships. They're all coming from families. It's just wonderful. It's beautiful. Periodically throughout the year, we get to contact the people who donated the car. They can arrive for the ceremony and see where that car goes and to meet the people that receive them. It's really really inspirational what was your question (laughs) (laughs) so just going through that process of like what are these things you want the steps you want to see them take before they get to that place where they're released into um that next part of their life so we we with all good works context and this is one context and we have several and i can speak about context it's our, our language of context we have these four basic uh, initi- uh, principles or desires. Number one, we want to build a relationship with the person to whatever extent that can occur. But it, we have to be mindful of the power differential. We've got a lot of power. So in order for some form of mutuality to occur, we have to either we have to use our power carefully so that we don't diminish the person. So relationship. Number two, it's trust. We want to build trust with everybody. I'm convinced that the seeds of the good news of the person of Jesus are planted and are nourished and and bear fruit based on trust, not based on yelling at somebody or screaming or or requiring them. I've never had a, you got to sit through a sermon in order to eat your meal. We've never done that. We're not going to do that. Uh, and the shelters that I've stayed in, they require me to do that. I don't think that's a good idea. Everything is based on trust. And so I ask my coworkers and our volunteers, is what words we're using, is that going to build trust or is that going to diminish trust? Oh, yeah, the homeless guy. What's his name? I can't think of him right now. Does that build trust or is there other language you could use or is that diminish trust? Um, and so words and tone, I have these three f- phrases I use, uh, choice of words, Tone by tone, I mean, no, no, tone um, or sequence of words. Can we get this in the right sequence? And how do you get that? You can't except for the wisdom from above. Absolutely. Right? It's God's wisdom that helps you with the tone, the sequence, and the choice of words. Uh, but and being goal- able to hear that. And I think, you know, we talk about like, you talk about not being programmed because you grew up in a church. I mean, I think, I think that's a lot of it too, is like we're dependent on 
others to tell us how to think and feel and what to do when the Holy Spirit is absolutely speaking to all of us and learning to hear that voice and hear it more clearly as we obey it, you know, and as we, as we, you know, humble ourselves to that. Go ahead. So here's my life verse. These four guys heard that Jesus was in a house healing people. So they went and they got their friend who was paralyzed and couldn't get there by himself. They needed to bring him. He's on a stretcher. They're in line. The line is long. The sun's going down. One of them gets an idea. And the idea is we're going to go through the roof. And he's got to persuade the other three of doing something they've never done in their entire life. That's crazy. I'll never hear the end of this. But they look at the desperation of their friend who can't get to Jesus by himself. They're carrying him. And so they all agree to take him up and lower him through the roof. The goal here is for that man in the stretcher to hear Jesus say, which is easier, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Because for God, neither one is hard. And so I love that because it has innovation. It has risk. It's got ingenuity. It's a little crazy. And that's what I think we're all kind of safe Maybe too safe. We are. You know? So let's take some risks, particularly when it means loving people. Are we going to make mistakes? Let me just say, if you don't have a theology of failure, I can help you with that today before you go. (laughs) I made enough mistakes. But we can take more risk. And I tell people to spell faith, R-I-S-K, and suggest that there is no faith without risk. And if you're not risking something, you have talk. Yeah. You don't have faith. Yeah. That's good. I had some end of my sermon there. Right? No, no, <laughs> I got going. goosebumps. So. Yeah, keep going. Keep going. Now, let, let me ask you. Let me ask you this, because I'm sure you've got millions of these, and 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 I think you know, just in story, I don't know. It just connects us to 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 Christ, you know, through through life experience and story. What are what are some of your favorite? stories from this ministry because i know like a, a a book that really was just powerful and transformative to me in opening my eyes and you know not not only to this issue but 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 also just to to how god can use us is the same kind of different as me have you ever sure what an incredible story yeah. of of how god can use just a few Yes, I will do this and and going after that. But but like what what are some of those stories for you that it's just been like, all right, God, wow, like you're just blowing my mind with this. You know, God can work with a willing spirit, but an unwilling spirit, you gotta, uh, you know, it's gotta, he's gotta send you a donkey, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know that story. So I remember when guy asked to borrow my sweater and he never came back, and I'm like, hey. That was my sweater. I liked that sweater. What was that? I was doing the right thing. What's your problem? How come I can't get my sweater? And I had to learn whose sweater it was, right? So that was one of the pivotal parts of my, whose stuff is this anyway? Mm -hmm. I'm a steward of this stuff. It's not my stuff, right? So that's that was actually a pretty monumental shift in my thinking about what I'm doing. Whose stuff is this and what's my role? I don't own anything. Okay, so then a few years later, the next story that comes to mind is this guy that comes. This is so interesting to me. He's coming um, to the door. He doesn't speak English. He speaks Italian. And I can't understand him. And then he tells us he speaks French. I'm like, okay, well, we had a resident who spoke French, which is rather unusual, right? (laughs) Yeah. So he translates the guy's story. The guy claimed to be a professor from Italy who was walking from Los Angeles, California to New York City. And I'm like, 
Yeah, right. I mean, I didn't know what to think. And he translates, we do the interview, we let him stay, and the next day he leaves. And we treated him to hospitality. We, one of our staff went and got him a photo of Athens and so he could take on his journey, and he's walking. And I'm like, yeah, right. So about three months later, maybe four months later, I get a letter in the mail of thank you with an article, a photocopy of an article which says Italian professor reaches New York City oh, wow. shaking the hands of the mayor, right? So I'm like, you never know. You just never know, right? Right. And then there's the other side of this. I'm sitting in the office one night. I'm talking to my coworkers, and we're both talking about these people that we think there's something really wrong here. We can't put our finger on it when the phone rings, and it's the city police. And they said, do you have these people there? And we said, yeah. And the next thing you know, there are like eight police officers, clo- the, not uh, some, some in uniform, some ununiform, with guns, and they are there to get these people. And they got them. And then we went upstairs and found that they had tied together all the sheets in the bedroom to be lowering themselves out of the window in case they needed to. Mm. You just don't know what you're dealing <laughs> right. with sometimes. But right. I will tell you, the Lord has protected us. The Lord is our rear guard, I think is the phrase in, in Isaiah. Now, I could go on with many beautiful and amazing stories. But, you know, to me... One of the more amazing stories is me, the the story of how God's worked through me. A drug dealer from Cleveland, Ohio, that and I look at the end of my life and I go, I, I pray every day, Lord, help me to finish well. And I want to be able to, to know that God used me. And I think that's what every one of you listening to this podcast today, uh, you want your life to have purpose. I think that's the name of your... Yeah, pursuit of purpose. Yeah. You want to have meaning. You want to know that your life matters and, and that you're an instrument. And for me, an instrument of transformation in the life of another person. And it's heartbreaking. It's not all just on the good side. Some of it's heartbreaking. Um, I can't tell you that there are people that are in the county jail, and I'm glad that God used me to help them have another place to stay because they needed to be in that location Mm -hmm. because they were like a drunk driver hitting cars and and navigating and hitting pedestrians, and they needed to be stopped. So that side of it is not the side we as Christians like to talk about, but the reality is if God can use me to help someone in that situation um, as well. Now, we had a guy come to us. Uh, I answered the phone, and um, uh, the referral was from the uh, prison in Nelsonville, and he uh, th- was being released that day. And there was like no preparation. And so he arrives. He had been incarcerated for 35 consecutive years, mm. and I was 32 years old at the time. And all I could think was, Mr., the world has changed. Would you like me to tell you about it? <laughs> and it was just, in, the, in retrospect, it was an awe-inspiring moment that I was invited by God to have the privilege of being one of the first people he would see and talk with after he got out. And I, to this day, I cherish, I felt like that was the invitation of God. God, God, God could have picked anybody, but he picked me. So I look at this idea that God could use me as an agent to bring hope and healing and in some other ways, to stop people who are on destructive paths. Right. Yeah. right. What have been some of the like the the maybe more eye opening success stories from individuals who have been through the program? Um, maybe even people that have you know are working with Good Works now or whatever. I mean, have there been stories like that of just? Um, 
So there's a lot of stories here. We could probably use the rest of our time just for that, but I'll tell you a couple. Okay, so you have, and there's a video on the front page of our website that tells these two stories. The first is Terry, who walked to Athens, Ohio, from Cleveland, Ohio, and I didn't believe her until I got to know her, and I realized she definitely walked here. <laughs> she's, she's a very honest person, a woman of high integrity. She um, stayed with us, and she went through a lot of recovery, and then found the local congregation. She wasn't a Christian. She found a local congregation, became a believer. She's still in that church. She's been on staff 21 consecutive years. She started, after she left the shelter, she did an internship with us. Then she met her husband, and her son starts started Ohio University this, wow. this fall. Um, and she is just a wealth of perspective and, and energy and love, and uh, what a gift, yeah. you know? And then there's Sherilyn who just left the staff after 25 consecutive years. She was a resident. As soon as she moved out, uh, I invited her to come back and work, and I had no idea that she'd stay 25 consecutive years. She got a brain tumor in October of last year. She had to stop working. We just had a celebratory event for her. Her leaving is a great loss for us. Um, and the last person is Buddy. He's currently on staff. But we've had many, many others who have come on staff. I don't know if there was any on staff when you were here. Buddy uh, is amazing. He stayed at the Timothy House with his daughter maybe 10 years ago. Uh, then he came back as a volunteer, and he's been on the paid staff for about eight years. And he's the foreman on the new building that we're building. And he's he's amazing. Uh, he's a gift to the world, and we're just so grateful. But he's growing, and we're growing. And this is the thing with anybody that works in the community here. There's a, there's a kind of a simultaneous growing together. We're all learning from each other, and we're growing together. It's incredible, too, because I think, you know, we, we, we see how— God uses, you know, the things the world throws away in some of the most spectacular and beautiful things. And you get a front row seat to, to a lot of those stories and a lot of those things that, you know, in, 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 in the regular church, you know, we're looking for, you know, I need somebody to fill this role. Who's the most talented person I can get? Who's the best vocalist? Who's the best, you know, they they show these, they're the prodigies, right? Those are the people we're looking for when, I mean, scripture is pretty plain, like and simple when it comes to this, hey, listen, these are the things that I use, and I use them not to glorify themselves, but to glorify me, and, and that's a that's an incredible or gift. Or in the book of James, where the writer says, God has chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. Well, that means that we could learn a lot about faith from the poor absolutely. if we were listening. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Good stuff. Well... Keith, I do want to hear your your stories on how you've traveled to, to numerous cities. Before that, um, something that I remember when I came through that I absolutely loved and I thought it was it just fit into the relational piece really well was Friday Night Life. Um, do, you, do you guys still do that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Could, yeah. could you just talk about that well, a little April, bit? April, we'll, we'll start the 30th year of Friday Night Life. We never stopped during the pandemic. We had to use other forms of sure. providing food. But uh, we started Friday Night Life when people were moving out of the, the, sh- the shelter, the Timothy house. And they'd come to me and they'd show me their keys. And they were excited with this glow in their eyes. And they go, I got my place. And I'm like, don't leave. I like you. And I, <laughs> I couldn't say that. because, But I did, you know. Now, that wasn't the case with everyone. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we created in 1993 a way to um, 
just invite people to come back for supper on Fridays. And we were really surprised they came and they kept coming. And within a few weeks, we had 40 people coming every Friday night for supper. And we were the first public meal in the county back in the 90s. And then we we moved to a church and we met down there for a while. Then we moved to another church. And uh, before the pandemic, our average was somewhere between 80 and 100 people. And a lot of those were kids. And we had formed a sense of community where there was people felt safe and they felt loved. Friday Night Life has always been geared or tilted in the welcome. We love you. What's your name again? You know, it's it's part of that culture, creating an atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like to kind of kid people, say I'm an environmentalist, meaning I think one of the, my re- leadership roles is to create an environment where people feel safe and they feel welcome and they feel loved. There's a word called hospitality for this. But um, so we started uh, Friday Night Life in the 90s. It kept growing. Uh, then we had a whole kids club wing for it. Then we had health education. And, well, in kids club, you used to just be, was that held out here at the Hannah House? We had in both that... locations. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. We had both, both locations. Yeah. Uh, and then we had edu- health education, we had music, and it just became a community event for lots of people. And um, uh, then COVID hit and it, it began to shrink because people were afraid to be in congregate facilities and, you know, just fear kind of gripped everybody. So we had to pull back, but we never stopped serving food. We had Friday Night Life last night. We had about maybe 35 people that came and uh, it was good. We played Jenga and I lost. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> was it was it like the big life size Jenga or just little Jenga? Little jingle. <laughs> had to ask. Had to ask. Um, so yeah, Keith, uh, I, 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 we cannot end this podcast without hearing about some of your stories that you, where you've traveled to um, different cities and, and really tried to gain perspective um, on uh, being someone without a home. Uh, w- would you mind telling sure, us a little bit about that about and some of, some of your experiences? So um, I know that I wasn't really homeless i know that because i could have gotten out of every one of those situations and that's the difference but i went uh i think the proverbs uses the phrase pretended to be poor in order to understand it was my continuing education or to put it where was this in kind of the timeline of of i started in 1989 my last trip was in 2018 yeah. Wow. So I go because here's my motto: I don't know what I don't know. Well, duh, you know. But I knew there was things to learn, and boy, did I learn them. So my first trip was to Lexington, Kentucky. Lexington is the coolest city with all these horse farms, and it's beautiful. And you don't realize until later that it's only beautiful if you have money. Ah. I didn't think about that. I didn't take any money. I stayed in the Salvation Army with 300 people on the gymnasium floor. And um, this was um, the beginning of my learning curve. Got my day labor job stripping tobacco, right? We're on uh, Jamestown. I'm Georgetown outside of Lexington, and uh, I'm learning how to strip tobacco. Meanwhile, I have gallstones, and I didn't realize what was going on. I was in a lot of pain. So um, the boss comes around while I'm stripping tobacco, and he's hosing things down because there was dust in the wind. But we won't. I digress. (laughs) Anyway, so he missed. He hosed me down. I'm like, I'm like that. I'm cold now. And so... And I didn't have what the guys had next to me. They were, they had something I didn't, I never thought of this before. They had stamina. I'm like, 
Where's my stamina? You can't even buy that at Walmart. I didn't have any energy left. I didn't sleep well. And I began to understand what it's like for people who don't sleep well and they're dragging during the day and they're dragging and they get sick. And when they get sick, it gets worse. And so Lexington was an amazing first immersion into another world. I get, I, I quit. I hitchhiked back to town. Then I walked and a guy comes up to me and he, he says, I, let me have some money. I said, I don't have any money. I, I recognize you. I stayed where you stayed last night. He he pulls me over to him to his cheek with his hand forcefully, and he clenches his teeth and he says, "I said, let me have some money." And my heart is speeding up, and I'm freaking out, and I'm like, "This was not part of my plan." For <laughs> I didn't think of that at the time, but later I thought of that, and I said with enthusiasm, "I don't have any money, man." The '60s language, right, man? <laughs> I don't have any money. I stayed where you stayed last night. He releases his grip and he lets me go. And I get into a more public space and my heart begins to slow down. And then I realized I actually had changed from the $5 I was paid for four hours of work. And I must tell you that I didn't think about whether the state has labor laws mm. until I got $5 for four hours of work. And I've been working and, with people. And what year was this? This was 89. I've 89. been working with people without homes for almost eight, nine years at that point. Well, well, someone should be asking those questions, and yeah. I didn't think of it until I was in the situation. And then I realized I had like a buck and change left from the chili dog that I later, it was a bad idea. But anyway. <laughs> did you did you find that a lot, just the exploitation of, of oh, yeah. individuals in that state? Because, I mean, where else are they going to go? Oh, it's everywhere, because I've done all these different cities. So, yeah, oh, you mean in the state of being in the situation of homelessness? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. There's a lot of exploitation. You bet. And women are taking advantage of, you bet. So eventually calmed down and I said, well, you know, I have a dollar left in my pocket. Why didn't I just say, you know, it's my only dollar. If you don't mind, I'd like to keep it. You don't do that. So I lied. But I don't self-identify as liar. And then it hit me. In a millisecond, it hit me. Something I'd never thought of before, never realized before. I lied in order to survive. Yeah. And that became a big understanding of why people out of fear don't, tell the truth about their situation because survival's the mission statement. That's the main deal here. So my goal is to create safe, temporary place where people can trust one another and they can feel like they can be honest about what's going on. So in our house rules at Timothy House, we talk about we want to create an environment where you can tell us what's really going on and don't have to lie to us. So Lexington was the first. Um, the most recent one was Columbus, Ohio. I can talk about that for a moment. The reason I went to Columbus, Ohio, I stayed out of Ohio because I knew most of the shelter directors there. But, uh, you know, time had passed, and so I don't know who the director was. I went to this shelter in Columbus called the Friends of the Homeless. And I walked in. It's a gated community, meaning they have to open the gate to let you in and open the gate to let you out. So I walked in, and I said... Um, I need a place to stay. And the guy at the desk said, well, I don't know if you know anything about Columbus, but we don't do it like other cities. You have to call a 1-800 number and they place you in a shelter. I said, okay. He says, there's a phone right there. Here's the number. You make the call. I said, good, thanks. I went, I made the call. All of our representatives are working with other customers. Please stay on the line. <laughs> you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, mm. an hour, an hour and a half. All of our representatives, you know, every three minutes that little thing would come on. Finally, this guy from the shelter comes up, and he was bigger than me. He says, buddy, you need to get off the phone right now. I said, yes, sir. So I hung up the phone. I went back to the desk, and they said, well, what did they tell you? I said, they never answered the phone. I felt like they thought I was lying to them, but I wasn't lying. They said, you go back and make that call. I said, 
Okay. So I went back. All of our representatives are working with other... 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Hello, this is Jason. How can I help you? I felt like saying, hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> but I didn't. Anyway, so um, I said, Jason, I was told to call this number. I need a place to stay. Social security number. Would you do that? You need a place to stay. I was taught you're not supposed to just give that out to anybody. I gave him my real social security number. Date of birth. Gave him my real date of birth. Name. Gave him my real name. I'm I'm going through the process, right? Where'd you stay last night? Well, Jason, if it's okay with you, I don't feel like I could I'm ready to talk about that right now. Oh, no problem. When you're ready to talk about that, call me back. Click. Welcome to Columbus, Ohio. Wow. Welcome to dehumanization. Welcome to the institutional dehumanization. And people who are functioning in those jobs don't even realize how dehumanizing it is. So there's other cities. There's Tulsa, Oklahoma, Jacksonville, Florida, Indianapolis, Indiana, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Akron, Ohio, Charleston, West Virginia. I, I think I remember the Charleston story, and I, I don't know why I remember that. It was something you you literally, like you befriended a, I believe, a pimp or a, yep. was it a pimp or he prostitute? Was, he was unemployed. But yeah, you got to tell that gotcha. story now. You yeah. got to tell that yeah, story Yeah, sorry. I, I, that was a can of worms, but <laughs> you can tell it if you want. Yeah, and he was staying <laughs> in the shelter, and he's... Uh, Telling me what he does for a living, and uh, he's, he's, he's kind of uh, in between jobs because his woman's locked up in the county jail. I'm like, okay, that's a problem. So he shows me a whole side of the Charles that I'd never seen. Now, you have to understand, I've been to Charles. I'm not exaggerating, at least 50 times in my life. My mom grew up in Charleston. My grandparents lived in Charleston. My uncle was a state senator in Kanawha County in West Virginia. So I knew Charleston pretty well. My grandparents owned a music store. My uncle owned a giant pool called Rock Lake Pool. So I knew Charleston, but he showed me a side of Charleston I'd never seen before. <laughs> and and, uh, and so it was a it was a learning experience. And again, I felt like it was a privilege. Now I was a little apprehensive and scared. He was from Detroit. He wasn't from Charleston. He was he was doing business in Charleston, but he was so um, I was a little apprehensive. But I I also kind of try to look at the privilege side of this. What an opportunity to learn things from his perspective that I would have never been able to yeah. learn. And there's a lot more to that story, but that's I can stop there again. Right. Yeah. That that could have that could have been a can of worms, but yeah, I I appreciate you sharing those stories. I I think that's something that uh is, we don't do enough of in our own lives. You know, I'm not saying that any person just needs to go out and do what what Keith does here, but um you know, gaining that perspective is definitely life changing. Have you ever had other um, employees or people that have worked here that have done similar things to kind of get that perspective? Well, once I took one of our interns with me to Cincinnati, that didn't go well and we had to get out because there was a lot of racial tension and we were on the other side of that racial tension and I needed to get him safe. That was the only time. Uh, no, there was another time um, uh, that one of my night shift staff went to the Akron, Ohio. People are not stepping up to this. Now, I do think this is a lot more doable if you don't stay overnight. You go early in the morning, you begin to present yourself in one of the more common shelters uh, or in the common day centers and you just kind of hang out you'll listen you watch you go through the the meals you can learn a lot and never have to stay overnight do you feel like you know from a pers perspective standpoint you're you're definitely not going to see the same side if you go and volunteer or you know i, I mean clearly there's a there's a separation there. I'm not trying to act like that's not a difference, but I'm just saying 
do you feel like you have more of a eye-opening experience doing that from that side versus hey, trying to be a blessing to this, you know, because of, you know, what I do have already? I, you know, I'm just I'm just asking. Yeah, it's hard to measure or quantify what you would learn or uh, how much, because as a volunteer, you'll still learn a lot as a staff person. Uh, from a recipient point of view, one of the things that you learn that you don't really expect to learn is the power differential. And you see the power that people have and how they can control you or determine things for you unless you comply. And you can see the abuse of power. And I take note about that and make sure that our staff don't fall into those things. Uh, you can fall into that under the name of control, but then how much control do you, did you really need in that situation? Uh, but I, I, I'm aware of the power differential, and I try to make sure that our, our community is aware. And so you don't see it as much until you're on the other side of it and realize that someone has control over you. Um, yeah. Wow. How many of these... What 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 was the length of time that you would generally mm-hmm. go? Because I mean, it sounds like, you know, some were short, some were longer. Like what what's what what was usually the length of time that you would stay? The longest was four nights, and the shortest was uh, most of them were two nights. Yeah, yeah. When I was in Pittsburgh, uh, the 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 second night I went back, and the shelter was full. And I'm like, well, that was not part of my plan. And they said, well, there's another shelter in an area of Pittsburgh called the Hill District, and you can go there and get in the van. So I get in the van, I get to the other shelter. Whoa, that was a lot different than the, it was cold. It was like 40 degrees inside. It was in the old YMCA. And there were people going in the rooms there that I would not want to go into. And I, the fire alarm was going off. And I went down to the desk and I said, hey, uh, your fire alarm's going off. Should we be exiting? He said, oh, no, that happens all the time. Don't worry about it. I'm like... Uh. (laughs) then i later learned the hill district is a place in the pittsburgh area that no one should be going to ever (laughs) it's a really dangerous place yeah yeah well uh oh go ahead kevin no no, you're good well i was just gonna say we're we're nearing about an hour Mm -hmm. um so i I did want to maybe give you a we we like to call them shameless plugs um (laughs) you've you've talked about the book a little bit good works would you like to Maybe just make a quick plug on that. Maybe just describe what what's in your book, Good Works, um, and then who who did someone co-write that yeah. with you? Okay, yeah. So um, people ask, how, how, when did you start writing that? Well, forty years ago, I started writing it. And, uh, <laughs> I started lecturing at Asbury Theological Seminary in a class there, and the professor started taking notes, and I'm like, hmm, it must be important. Someone's taking notes on me, and uh, then she came to me years later. What was the class? What was ethics? The, yeah. Ethics. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then she came to me years later, and she said, uh, I think we should write a book together. And sure enough, uh, we did. And her name is Christine Pohl, Doctor Christine Pohl. She's now retired from uh, teaching at Asbury. She taught almost uh, 29, 28 years there. I was in her first class and I was in her last class <laughs> and we are now, uh, we, we're dear friends. And um, so she uh, and I collaborated on this. It's really the story of good works. Uh, the last chapter is her uh, theological view of, of the phrase good works and why are good works good. I think that's the name of the chapter. Uh, the first chapter is on worship as our primary paradigm of mission. Uh, that's the thing that sustains us because we see the work we do as an offering with the phrase, Lord, this is for you. Therefore, whether people are responsive or unresponsive, whether they're grateful or ungrateful, is secondary or almost irrelevant because, Lord, this is for you, not for them. And that's what Jesus, I think, was getting at when he said, what you have done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. So the whole first chapter is on worship. Then there's a chapter on integrity. There's a chapter on leadership. And um, they're basically just my stories uh, 
um, uh, about the journey and what we've learned and, you know, the theology of failure and the, the, this, the things that have helped us along the way, the transferable principles uh, that we think are helpful for others. And um, yeah, so the book was, is called Good Works and it's published by Erdman's and you can get it on the Erdman's site um, or the Amazon site uh, if you want to. I always like to tell people, you know, um, one of my, I have five claims to fame, all right? Number one is I don't have any tattoos, all right? Number two, <laughs> as I stopped watching network and commercial television in 1987. Good for right? you. All right, number three, I don't drink pop, Pepsi, or anything like that. Never have, never will. Nothing carbonated. All right. I don't know if you would still say these are claims to fame. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, uh, the, the fifth one is something that was relevant to why I was bringing this up, and I can't remember what it was. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, when you're getting old, uh, two things happen. One is your back, you stay home while your back goes out. You, that's one. <laughs> and, and the other thing is you keep on repeating yourself. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Uh, Keith, this has been uh, an incredible uh, time for us, mm -hmm. just a, a real blessing to hear you speak of how God's used you in such an incredible way and, and inspirational. So um, I know Nate has just uh, just talked about you and your ministry and the impact you've had on his life over and over and over again. So it was kind of a dream of his and then became a dream of ours to be able to sit down with you and have a conversation. And man, I hope we can do this again because uh, this is really, really a beautiful thing. Let me, let me ask you to end uh, in this way, if it's all right. So if, if you were if if you had just and and I I know this is this is not going to be an easy thing to do but if if you could just say anything to a, an audience that you know has the same beliefs about who Christ is and 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 what he is to us like if you had just a few things that you would say hey listen these are the things I'd say like have 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 really you know, and you've talked about some of this, I've formed my life, but things I would say, hey, listen, if you're a young person and, you, and you're wanting to go after God, these are the things I'd say, um, do and, and go after. Uh, we have a lot of things that we have common beliefs in, right? You know, so it's not necessarily, hey, listen, here's this and this, but like, what would be the advice that you would give to a young person just who is starting to understand and see, hey, this is what God wants for me in my life? Pray now that God will give you eyes to see a relationship that you can be intentional with to cultivate with someone who is not like you. They could be from another country. They could be from another place in your city. They could be poor. They could be addicted. How can you pray and discern how to enter that relationship? Now, Jesus sent his disciples out in twos, so it's good for you to start praying for a friend to join you when you're going into these relationships, but pray for one of these relationships. Why? Because you will be deformed as a Christian unless you're in some relationship. We are desperately in need of the poor, not to, uh, not to just give them stuff, but to be in relationship and learn from, to see the world uh, from their perspective. It says if Jesus looked upon the multitudes with compassion and he understood something his disciples did not understand, he described them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He understood something. And I think in order for us to understand some things about the gospel and the kingdom of God, we must be in some kind of relationship with someone who is in that form of neediness. Um, if we just read books about them or hear lectures about them or go um, 
uh, read read what the Bible says about them without the relationship, then we cannot understand the kingdom of God because uh, God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom. Well, goodness, there's something there. And the central theme of our ministry is the experience of the kingdom. Our mission, good works exist to connect people from all walks of life with people in poverty so that the kingdom of God can be experienced. Jesus speaks about the kingdom over and over again. He compares the kingdom to many things, and he invites us. He says at one point, it's a father's good pleasure. I offer that the, the relationship to Jesus himself and the kingdom is deficient, except that we have a relationship of of someone who is struggling with poverty. And to, to, to close this off, I will say, you cannot be don't make sense unless you that relationship is what makes the bridge <laughs> in the sentences of understanding about who Christ is who you are and who they are. It's the relationship that builds the bridge. And until you have it, you are left to, uh, what, it's, uh, to make what, uh, my, quite gibberish. Just gibberish. Hmm. So be intentional. Don't be casual. And don't wait for someone to tell you. Um, Nike came up with it, and I, I like it. Just <laughs> do it. Do it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, by the way, our website—if you—if you might want to put that out at some point. Absolutely, we'll put a link there. It. Yeah, for I, sure. I wanted to—I wanted to put that on on the podcast link because uh, I'm sure people might want to find ways to be relational and volunteer with you guys. Maybe uh, so, some yeah, more so time. Visit us. We're glad yeah. we have visitors all the time. I don't know. People don't. Know. We run a bed and breakfast. It's a revenue source for us, and uh, people can stay here. We also have a guest house. We don't charge anything to stay in our guest house. You know, <laughs> come and visit. Absolutely. Incredible, man. Thank yeah. you so much for the time that you've given uh, just us. We we feel so blessed by this. Uh, would you mind close us in prayer? Father, our lives are in your hands. We trust you. Lord, we know you love us. We lean into your love, which is the most powerful freeing thing in our lives. We declare that you are good. And they have good things in store for us, for your creation, for your people. And so we lean into your goodness. And I pray for every one of us that goodness and mercy would follow us all the days of our lives as we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. 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 Well, Keith, once again, uh, thank you, man. It's, it's really good to see you again after all these years. and Still crazy. Yeah. After all, all these years. years. <laughs> so really appreciate it. Uh, Cody, Kevin, once again, thanks, guys. Um, thanks for tuning in, everybody. We appreciate it. Hope to see you on the flip side. See ya. Later. Bye.